A few years ago, my family and I had the good fortune to spend a few weeks in the UK. And the centerpiece of that trip was that we got to be cat sitters for a friend of a friend in London for two weeks. And so we got to live in this house, this, the, a real home in a real neighborhood with real cats. And we could feel like we really lived in London for that time. It was a good enough time, a long enough time, that we got really a sense of the rhythm of the place. We got to know the tube without having to look at the map all the time. And of course, we went to all of the sites that people go to, the museums and special cultural locations. And of course, me being a priest, I dragged my family to many churches. And one place that we went to that met all of those, um, all, all of those categories was Westminster Abbey. So Westminster Abbey is stunning. It's an incredible place to enter into and to experience. Um, and it's amazing when you think back about the origins. It started in 960 when there was really an abbey, a monastic community. It was just a few dozen monks. And then about 100 years later, the king, William the Confessor, had the plan to build a Romanesque large church that would become a burial place for kings and queens of England. And incredibly, uh, he was the first person to be buried in this church that he deemed to be built right after it was consecrated, just a few months later, two or three months afterwards, he was buried in the year 16, or 1066. And then a few centuries later, 1245 was when the, the place was rebuilt as the Gothic church that we know today. And over the centuries, it has been the place of the burial of countless kings and queens and relatives of them, and also places for royal weddings and for coronations. And I was struck when we were wandering around and experiencing that place, and we could hear the choir as they were rehearsing for Evensong that day, and the sound of their voices was traveling up into the top part of that magnificent space. And the beauty was just glimmering everywhere. And the juxtaposition of that with the effigies, the cold stone uh, statues lying in rest of these kings and queens who had been dead for centuries. And it became so obvious to me even with these kings and queens and all of the power that they possessed during their lifetimes, the saying is true, you can't take it with you. All the kings and queens, some of them more illustrious than others, all of them equally deceased. And we hear today in the book of Daniel this morning a description of the king who is to come. And we hear these words, his dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away. And his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. It's shockingly different from any kind of kingship that we've ever seen or known on the earth. Daniel is pointing to the king to come, to Jesus. And then we hear about in the gospel, Pilate is face to face with this king, but he is completely confused. Now, first of all, who was Pilate? You know, Pilate was 
a governor, a Roman governor. Typically, he was not in Jerusalem. He was outside of Jerusalem at a place called Caesarea Maritima. But he was brought into Jerusalem every year at Passover because so many people came from all across the countryside and filled Jerusalem. Historians describe it as being a tinderbox during that Passover time. Uh, it was beyond max capacity in the city. And if something were to go wrong, it could go very, very bad. And so he was there as a Roman governor to keep the lid on things, to keep Roman rule, to keep order. And this strange things hap thing happens when they give him this person. The Jewish religious authorities give Jesus to him, asking him to take his life on their behalf. And so we hear the, the dialogue, this intriguing dialogue, where Pilate is asking Jesus questions. And you can read it as Pilate is this strange outsider to the story, and he's curious and he wants to know about Jesus, and some even have thought he's sort of sympathetic. He washes his hands in a different version of this. But you can also read it in a different way. This year, it opened up to me, and I realized that that's not what's happening. We know historians outside of the Bible have written about Pilate. The historical figure was known for his cruelty and for how unfair he was. And ruthless he was. And so when he's asking these questions, he's asking Jesus about his kingdom. These are practical questions. He's about to kill this person who is called a king. So he's saying, well, where is your realm? What sort of people might be there? What kind of weapons do they possess? Are they going to be coming for me after I kill you, who are called a king? And when Jesus doesn't give him an earthly answer to that, and as Pilate continues to basically mock the Jews who sent him, it ends up turning into a conversation about truth. And Jesus says, when asked about his kingdom, this is what I was born into the world to do. That his kingdom is not from this world, but that he is born to testify to the truth. And then he says, everyone who belongs to truth listens to my voice. And clearly that's the answer. That's his kingdom, the truth. That which is true is the realm of God. We know that where there is love, God is there. Where there is truth, God reigns. And then we actually have one last verse that got cut out of the gospel reading that is given out to all the churches to read on this particular day, Christ the King Sunday. Um, I don't know why the people who prepared the lectionary would cut this out, but there's a final thing where Pilate asks Jesus one last question and never gets answered. And the question is... What is truth? That's the end of this part of the story. And you can wonder, what does Pilate mean to ask that question? He could mean it in various ways. He might be saying, define for me what you mean when you say truth. I don't think that's what he means. I think what he is saying is, I don't know what truth means, and I have no use for it. I am a Roman governor, 
and therefore I am only interested in duty. In Luke 17, we hear that the kingdom of God is near us and even within us. It's as near as the truth. And standing for what is true is part of what we are called to do and to be as Christians, especially in this day and age when mendacious forces are on the rise. Yesterday, there was a discussion here at the church on uh, in the parlors, we, we had a gather, gathering of people um, and a woman from the diocese named Hazel Monet, an amazing woman. She is the missioner for equity and justice for the diocese. And most of the people who gathered were people that have been involved in our sacred ground efforts where people have learned a lot about the truth of relations of race in this country. And it was a wonderful start to the whole conversation when we were all reminded that you know, the theme of the day yesterday was to talk about truth and reconciliation. And people are interested in reconciliation. Reconciliation feels good, there's harmony, but you cannot start there. You can't get to reconciliation unless first you open yourself up to the truth. Truth is the first step. And the truth may be difficult, it may be very uncomfortable, but ultimately the truth is the truth, and it is liberating to be grounded in it. Jesus says in this same gospel, John chapter 8, he says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. William Sloan Coffin loved to say, that the world is too dangerous for anything but the truth and too small for anything but love. Well, our trip in the UK was bookended by a visit to another abbey, a very different abbey, one that was not in a big city. In fact, it was one that was in the middle of nowhere. And some of you may be guessing, if you're familiar, it's a holy place, a place that people make great effort to visit. It's a place called Iona, Abbey of Iona, which is on a tiny island called Iona with almost no people and just a few buildings. And the tiny island of Iona is off of a small island called Mole, which is off the coast of Scotland. And so we traveled out there. It was very difficult. You take two ferries and... And in our case, we had a rental car and that drive across um, the countryside with those one-lane roads where people drive like crazy and the red cows come in the middle of it. And I, I will admit, by the time we got to Iona, we were asking ourselves, was this a big mistake? You know, it's a famous pilgrimage site. It's a place where people experience the holy. Well, we set foot off of that last ferry and walked on the soil of that island and, and walked over to the abbey, past some of the ruins of previous buildings of earlier versions of the abbey. And we got there. We experienced something. It did not disappoint. And there's a word in Celtic Christianity that some of you may have heard before, and that word is a thin space. A thin space. It means that God is 
so near, it feels so near. Uh, that realm between, or, or the realm of God and the realm of us, that the barrier between it becomes so thin, so transparent, that you're blessed. And what I believe is that actually God is no nearer to you if you're standing on the soil of Iona than any other place or time in your life. It's just those thin spaces are blessings to us to know the possibility of that nearness and the reality of it. Because the kingdom is near. It is as near as the truth. And the truth will set us free. Amen.